Elon Musk attempts to terminate his deal with Twitter. Following the overturning of Roe v. Wade in Dobbs, reproductive rights groups are now filing lawsuits in states invoking the state constitutional right for privacy. We will explore that and let you know the outcomes there so far. And President Biden recently signed an executive order on reproductive rights. We'll talk a little bit about that. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals has ruled that Trump's former accounting firm, Mazers, will have to give the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee five years of records on potential inaccuracies in Trump financial statements, as well as the dealings of Trump and his businesses with the federal government when he was president. Steve Bannon's criminal contempt trial starts this upcoming week. We will explore what's going on there. And of course, Steve Bannon's last minute chicanery, we will explain. Fulton County Grand Jury has issued subpoenas for Lindsey Graham, Rudy Giuliani, and others in Trump's inner sanctum of MAGA in connection with Fawny Willis's investigation of Trump's election interference. Popak and I both predict that there will be an indictment there, but we'll explain that special grand jury process, what they can do, which is a referral, what happens next. We will explore that here. And we'll give you updates on the January 6th committee hearings. We've learned that White House counsel Pat Cipollone testified on Friday by way of transcription and private deposition, although the video testimony can in fact be used. Will it be used at the upcoming hearing on July 12th? And we've also learned that Sarah Matthews, deputy press secretary for Trump, the former deputy press secretary, she will be testifying publicly as well, and she will likely be corroborating everything that Cassidy Hutchinson said, and she knew Cassidy well as well as adding new information. Popak, no way of saying that Sarah Matthews was a just a low level employee that don't we know her, about. don't know her, never heard of her. She's unstable. I can tell from her handwriting. I'll write it right now. That's what he's going to say. Popak, how are you doing? First of all, welcome back. We weren't on the last one. Karen Friedman Agnifilo took over for that podcast. Were you jealous? <laughs> no, no. no. <laughs> I, I've, I've worked very hard with Karen over the last 26 <laughs> episodes to get her into a position so that the three of us interchangeably could co-host legal AF. And it worked. Uh, it worked right according to plan. So I could take a holiday. But I, as most people know, I had a I had a rough week in work. I had a rough week personally, which I'm just glad to be back in the saddle and, and here with you again today. Popak, it is great to have you here. This is always my favorite part of the week, and I know it is a favorite part of the week for all the Legal AF listeners. I want to get right into it. But Popak, I do also want to mention uh, at the end, you know, one of the constant things that we see over and over again with MAGA is this gaslighting. You know, they can't really own what their views are. You know, we saw it recently with Marjorie Taylor Greene, right? She went on her stupid podcast that she had and she talked about the horrific terrorist shooting that took place in Highland Park. And she basically said that she thought that that was, you know, actors and she didn't think it was real and, and words to those effect. And then confronted with it 
by, you know, she called it a false flag or she, she said, what's a, is this a conspiracy? I don't, I'm not spreading a conspiracy. Then when she was confronted with it, she basically denies that she says that and she blames the source that puts the information out and she goes, oh, well, that was Patriot takes a left leaning political action committee that it's like, those are your words. The reason why I bring that up too is as we talk about the January 6th committee hearing, you know, it's uh, these individuals, Pat Cipollone, Trump's White House counsel, right? Um, Sarah Matthews is the deputy press secretary. Cassidy Hutchinson was a top level person for Mark Meadows. So the constant gaslighting that everybody makes everything up. Judges have it wrong. Trump staff has it wrong. The only person who actually knows all of the answers to every question is the cult leader. And we see that time and time again. And we need to wake the cult up to that fact that every single person is sure. wrong, including this one person who's I, the biggest idiot and liar of them I, all. I used in a brief recently a um, that great philosopher Groucho Marx in a, a famous movie that the Marx Brothers made called Duck Soup had a great line. He says, who are you going to believe me or your lying eyes? And, and that's that's the MAGA approach. Everybody don't look at the evidence. It doesn't matter if they're Republican, doesn't matter if they were in the closest one degree of separation from Trump. They're making it up and they're lying. And fortunately, the court system so far has completely rejected that approach to a defense. And I think the courts are going to completely reject the approach to the defense of Elon <laughs> Musk as well, because Elon oh, yeah. Musk's approach to acquiring Twitter felt very MAGA ish. You know, there's a lot of people who I knew, Popak, who. Uh, maybe didn't know much about Elon Musk. They knew about Tesla. They may have had a Tesla. They read about Elon Musk. He was involved in PayPal and some other businesses that were successful. He kind of has this reputation as being this Tony Stark-esque kind of character. There's been a lot of red flags to basically say that's not the case. There's We've talked about on Legal AF a number of like serious lawsuits for racial discrimination and harassment that have taken place at Tesla. We've known about the mismanagement there. We've known that Elon Musk has been known to make these you know, uh, pronouncements that move stocks in directions that look and appear to be manipulation. But I think people got a real good view of the real Elon Musk, and it isn't pretty with this transaction. Basically, beginning on April 25th, when he announces that he's going to be acquiring Twitter, he waived all due diligence before acquiring Twitter. And then shortly after, he bought it for $54.20 a share because he thought that was trolling and funny to have 420 in it, which is right. a value of $44 billion, a substantial 38 or 39% premium above what the stock was trading at. So the board of Twitter basically approved it. They felt you, know, you could debate it, but they said, hey, that's such a premium. How could we not approve it? But he waived due diligence. They entered into a merger agreement. And then ever since entering into the merger agreement, he basically whined the whole time, right? He whined about this issue of Twitter's monetizable daily user accounts, the MDAU data, which the bots. But before he even entered this transaction, the reason he claimed he wanted to enter this transaction is that he wanted to save Twitter from bots. And then he enters into the merger agreement and complains about bots after waiving due diligence from uh, the outset. And so, Popak, just very briefly, and I want to get your thoughts on it, but the normal way this process would work, right, is 
you really wouldn't waive due diligence from the outset. You would ask for the data, get access to a data room, maybe enter into a letter of intent before entering into a definitive merger agreement. And then in the merger agreement, if there's indeed a material breach, there's ways to get out. But that's a very hard standard once you're actually in the merger agreement where you waive due diligence before. And you have Elon Musk's law firm, law firm that you worked for, Popak, when you first started practicing. (laughs) Scad and ARP. So your perspective here will be very helpful. They sent a letter and accused Twitter of engaging in material misrepresentations after the merger agreement and saying, look, Elon may have waived due diligence before, but that doesn't mean he was not entitled to data during the actual merger talks. And Elon has all of these issues with the MDAU data, the bot issue, and you've lied to him about the bots. That's the claim. And why I made sure I prefaced this with Elon Musk attempts to terminate it, Twitter's response is we're going forward with the deal. You owe us $44 billion, and we're going to go to the Delaware Chancery Court and tell you to pay us that money. Michael Popa. And, and they're going to get it. This is a losing defense by Elon Musk. And our, our my prediction with you, which was dead on on April 27th, whenever we said this will never go forward, he'll always find a way to try to back out of the deal if he can. This isn't about the $1 billion breakup fee. This is now in the hands or it will be probably on Monday with the filing of a lawsuit by Twitter in the Delaware Chancery Court for an emergency injunction and an order by a Delaware Chancery Court judge to force Elon Musk to close on the deal. And in the history of the Delaware Chancery Court, which handles 60 percent of the Fortune 500 companies are incorporated in Delaware. One half of all U.S. public companies are incorporated in Delaware. This is the business court of America. Only once in the history of the business court of America have they ever allowed a buyer like Elon Musk to walk from a merger and acquisition. And that was all. And that was in 2018 when a pharmaceutical company's executives lied about approvals of drugs in the pipeline by the FDA and their profitability. That's the level you have to get to for the only time in the history of the Delaware Chancery Court for them to say, you know what? You don't have to go through with that merger every other time. And we're talking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of decisions they have found against the party like Elon Musk, who tries to walk. And and I'll give you credit and our show credit. This might be the only show that actually defined what an MDAU is as it relates to Twitter and the bots. And you're exactly right. You can't sign the merger agreement, not a letter of intent, a contract to acquire the company. Don't do any due diligence in advance like you would do on a letter of intent. Put in some language about access to some financial information that you ask for. Try to act like that is the equivalent of a due diligence obligation, which it is not, or due diligence right. And then hope that you're going to find, if you really want to walk, what's called a material adverse event, an ME, an MAE and say, oh, there's an MAE. I get to walk from the deal. And if and if his MAE is the existence of bots on Twitter, which has been disclosed by them in their SEC filings and everybody knows it. And as you rightly pointed out, Ben, he said the reason he's acquiring it was to get rid of the bots. I don't think you can then stand there with a straight face in front of a Delaware Chancery Court judge and said, ah, material adverse event. There's bots on Twitter. We can't get to the bottom of it. Uh, my prediction is, and this is going to go quick. You know, people are 
are strung out about how long things are taking in Trump world to get prosecutions. That ain't the Delaware Chancery Court. This is going to go on an emergency fast track, probably with a filing on Monday with a lawsuit by the Twitter board and their lawyers, Wilson Sonsini and Delaware Council that they retain, although I think they have Delaware Council, an office actually in Delaware these days. And they're going to ask the judge within a month to issue a ruling on this case. And the ruling they want issued is uh, that Elon Musk must close on the Twitter acquisition. And this judge, just so everybody knows, has the power to order that, has the power to over the one billion dollar breakup fee. And, and that's how powerful this particular judge is. Whoever's assigned to it will know that quickly. Um, and as you said, Skadden Arps, my old law firm, is on the Twitter side. And, uh, and I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, on the Elon Musk side, wrote the letter to Twitter. But they've also hired, as you just to get inside baseball here, it looks like they've also hired um, another major law firm that you and I know well to be their co-counsel, I assume, in um, in Delaware to kind of go all no holds barred, scorched earth litigation. I got to tell you, I, I, I wasn't making it up. There's only been one time in the history of the Delaware Chancery Court where somebody like Elon Musk gets to walk away from a merger. I don't think there's going to this is going to be number two. The forum where cases are heard is very, very critical. And this is a perfect example of that. And businesses will put forum selection clauses or specifically incorporate their businesses in Delaware because of the certainty of the body of business law that has been developed over time in Delaware through its chancery court systems over there. And those are no nonsense business courts that don't screw around with the games and gaslighting of Elon Musk. If you want a perfect example of what's going to take place here, Think about when Trump's gang of idiots, although here Elon Musk is not going to have a gang of idiots. He's going to have some of the top law firms um, because they feel a little better pursuing kind of frivolous business arguments than they do overturning democracy. Um, but think about when <laughs> Trump had to go into these courts and make these ridiculous election, you know, big lie arguments in a federal court. It's not going to be as drastic as that when Elon Musk goes into the chancery court, but they're going to look at him and they're going to look at the tweets. They're going to look at that behavior. And there is a one billion dollar breakup fee that's in the agreement. But Elon Musk, that may be a good day for Elon Musk. Oh, yeah, it's going to be well above that. As you stated, the damages will be way above that. And it is possible that the court orders, it's a form of relief called specific performance, where they actually order you or order a party to consummate a transaction, even if they don't want to or put up the money. Let Think me give one more. The, when you're done, I want to give one more comment about why the Chancery Court is going to probably rule against Musk. Yeah. And I also want people to think about the other cascading liability as well. Think about the liability that Elon now has incurred with his Tesla shareholders as he tried to leverage his holdings there and the Tesla stock tanked as a result. Think about all the representations Elon made to uh, the capital stack that he tried to build, the people who were giving him debt, the people who were giving him cash. There's a whole group of people now who Elon has also basically screwed over 
in this transaction um, who are pledging money to be a part of this team with Elon. So there's a lot of people who are lawyered up right now. This is the equivalent of two massive armies in the litigation world. As we're recording this right now, I have no doubt that there are hundreds of associates and partners and paralegals in offices across the United States right now preparing this lawsuit no and doubt. preparing all the paperwork. So so to touch on what you just said and to bring it forward, the reason why the Delaware Chancery Court is going to, I predict, and I think you do too, ultimately make him do this deal or broker because they're, they're they're this is a business court. They could also broker a side deal for some other some other type of transaction is because the number one priority of the Delaware Chancery Court is the protection of the shareholders, business continuity, business reliability. Yes. But the protection of the shareholders and one of the data points that's going to be put on the board by the lawyers for Twitter is going to be the gyrating stock price since April till now, which went never got up to fifty four twenty was up to 51 at some point because the market always had a discount because they they thought Musk is not reliable. Let's put it put it kindly. Now the stock is in the 30s and heading down, not up. And what's happened is investors, big and small, are in that gyration, right? And they're being hurt and crushed and damaged the way you and I described before. So separately from the class action lawsuits that will come against Elon Musk for manipulating the stock from walking away from the deal, potentially against Twitter, certainly against Musk. The, the Delaware Chancery Court is in a position to help protect the market because they're going to come away with, no, 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 this deal's got to go forward to protect the shareholders of Twitter at 5420 who made who made business decisions based on that deal going forward with very little in the way of, way of uh, Musk backing out. And the market since April till July that has been trading in the shadow of that transaction, the Delaware Chancery Court has to protect that market as well. And they don't care about Elon Musk, boo-hoo. He's going to buy a few more bots that he wanted. Uh, Popak will keep everybody updated there. want to talk about what's been going on in state courthouses. As everybody knows, there's the federal system, the state system, um, and there's an interplay there uh, following the overturning of Roe v. Wade in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. There was obviously a right. There's a supremacy clause in our Constitution, and there was a well-recognized precedent on top of precedent, super precedent established in Roe v. Wade of this right to privacy for women to be able to have abortions. That was clarified in the Casey decision in the early 90s, um, basically making that constitutional right by drawing a line at viability. Um, but now, obviously, with Dobbs, it's completely overturned Roe v. Wade. It's overturned Casey. And so states uh, which had trigger laws, which basically uh, banned abortion as soon as Roe v. Wade would be overturned, as long as Roe v. Wade was law of the land, states couldn't supersede based on the supremacy clause of the United States Constitution, the federal right, the constitutional right to the abortion. But these trigger laws have started to go into effect. And these trigger laws are very, very harsh, very draconian. And they make the 15-week ban, which was already harsh and draconian um, in places like Mississippi, where the Dobbs case arises out of. These are cases and states that have trigger laws that also say that at conception, 
at conception, um, there's no right to an abortion in all cases, including rape and and incest and really no exceptions whatsoever. Um, there have been lots of uh, cases now in all of these states that have these trigger laws or that have laws that are now uh, banning uh, abortions to take place in their state, basically trying to invoke the state version of the privacy right within the state constitution. And the argument goes, well, while the Supreme Court ruled that there is no privacy right in the United States Constitution based on the way uh, the uh, Supreme Court viewed the history. We've talked, Popak and I, at length, and I spoke with Carrot Breedman Inifolo in the last one, that the Supreme Court, on lots of these decisions to trample on our rights, the radical Supreme Court justices, they've now kind of moved away from being strict textualists and focusing on the effect of things. And they've looked at historical traditions where they've divined what our founders would have done if they were alive today. And as I explained on previous legal AFs, how absurd that is, we went from focusing on real world events, what affects women, what affects people today to what would people who were alive in the 18th century would have divined? We consult our legal system and law schools about consulting the oracle of what the founders would have done. And we have radical right extremists who have their own perverted view of what history is anyway. And they cherry pick and they create these horrible rulings and horrible outcomes. So we have this state courts arguments from uh, pro-choice groups, pro-women's reproductive rights groups that say, well, the federal court, the Supreme Court said that, but here in this state, here in Louisiana, here in Florida, here in whatever the states are, we view things differently. The Supreme Court said that this is an issue of the states. Here in our states, our constitution does have a right of privacy and that privacy should extend. So whereas Roe v. Wade was a federal question and a federal you know, issue over the right of privacy, we're now seeing these argued in states. So Popak, maybe break down what's happening in Louisiana, what's happening in Florida and other states with that context given. Yeah, so as you and I kind of in our pre-production started talking about, we're now in a situation where a 10-year-old who's never had to worry about things like menstruation and otherwise, who has been raped, has to try to find a way to get out of her state and get to another state within six weeks, eight weeks, 15 weeks in order to have an abortion and find a state through a patchwork now of, of state regulations that are inconsistent and incoherent about a fundamental right that used to be in the Constitution until two weeks ago. And that's and that's what we're left with. We're going to talk in this segment about what Biden is trying to do from the federal level to enhance the ability of people to exercise whatever state they're in or to move to get to another state in order to exercise that right. The problem is, as we've to put a can't put a finer point on it since the Alito decision, which is exactly what they wanted. That issue is state by state, a patchwork of states, some some bordering the other that aren't consistent right over the border. You can get an abortion in your state. You can't. And then you have those states in a mean spirited attempt to federalize, nationalize their anti-abortion position. They're considering legislation to criminalize crossing the border to obtain that abortion that exercise that right in the state that even allows it. 
And the Biden administration is going to have to step up with the Department of Justice to do something about that and take cases to the Supreme Court on the right to travel, the Commerce Clause and those types of things. Right now, as it stands, 18 states, 18 ban abortion, eight severely restricted, including the state of Florida. That gives us 26 states out of our 50 where a woman or a girl cannot obtain a necessary abortion for really almost any reason, especially if she's out of time in this limited time period that you talked about. That leaves us approximately 24 states, although some of those are still up for grabs, where it is presently legal. There's about 20 or so will it, it will always be legal. We're talking about the, you know, the, the states that make up the largest electoral votes in this country, New York, California, the entire West Coast, the entire East Coast, up until you get to to North Carolina, but even states like Pennsylvania, which border Ohio's and Michigan's and I and, and, and Ohio, you know, things like that, they they are getting kind of purpley on this issue of abortion. So we had two recent developments in Florida. A Tallahassee judge initially ruled that the under the state constitution. Now we have to devolve back to the states and see what their right of privacy is. Most of these states and Supreme Courts have not had to address whether their state constitutions cover a right of a woman to choose because we've always had Roe v. Wade for over 50 years. Now these state Supreme Courts, which in many of the states I just identified, are controlled by Republicans because their legislatures were Republicans. They appointed Republicans like in Florida. They're now going to have to consider whether there's an amendment or an or a some sort of unenumerated privacy right that's respected in the state constitution that allows for abortion there now that the federal right is gone. So in Florida, the first judge to look at the issue said there is a right in the state of Florida based on the right of privacy in the state constitution to to have an abortion. Forget about the federal right. And he issued that injunction. Of course, immediately DeSantis appealed to the Florida Supreme Court. I think it'll go to the I think it'll go to the District Court of Appeal first, but then ultimately to the Supreme Court. And the problem with that is the Supreme Court is controlled by DeSantis and and uh, Scott, the former governor's appointees. And it and it swings harshly right. So I'm not confident about that Florida Supreme Court finding ultimately a right to privacy interest in the state constitution. Louisiana was controlled completely by uh, Republicans and the Republican Supreme Court members of that state Supreme Court has already ruled. Nope, nope, nope. Close down all the abortion clinics. We're done. We're out of the abortion business. There's no federal right and there's no state right as because I don't find that right of privacy in the state of Louisiana. And this is what you and I are going to be tracking over the next year as the as the progressives get off the mat from having been knocked out by the Roe v. Wade decision and try to figure out ways some of them using play, pages from the playbook of the other side to find a way to get state judges, state Supreme Court judges that are pro-abortion or pro-woman's right to choose onto these benches and then make the attack through amendments, moving for amendments in states to have the state constitution amended to allow for the right to choose. This is what's going to play out through the midterms and beyond, which is going to be at the molecular state level to try to find a way to, to have a right to choose. Here's the thing, Popak, too. You talk about the molecular state level, and we have the Supreme Court doing two things at the same time. While they are destroying 
the federal government's you know powers and the federal government's authorities they are also empowering state legislatures through the erosion of the voting rights act uh, at all levels of it to basically gerrymander the crap out of their states in all different ways so that the will of the people is not effectuated both at a federal and at a state level. This is all part of the radical right extremist agenda here, because if the will of the people truly held, let's take a state like Florida. There's a reason why Ron DeSantis is not talking about abortion at all. He has his lawyers, you know, basically, you know, doing these cases to defend the 15 week abortion ban. But you don't see DeSantis out there. He's been noticeably quiet, goes back to the beginning of the podcast about these people who are incredibly hypocritical because 56 percent of Floridians agree that women should have the right to abortion in all instances, in, in, in all cases. And so if the true will of the people held in Florida, you wouldn't even have a 15 week ban on abortion. You would have the right to choose um, uh being a constitutional right that's between a woman and between her doctor and her family and her faith, whatever the decisions, you know, that she wants to make in her decision. And so the will of the people is really what's not being followed here at all levels as the court erodes that very basic feature. So we will follow more of that. And of course, I want to give the update on Biden's executive order. Um, he signed an executive order on Friday protecting reproductive rights. Now, there are limits to what uh, executive orders can do. They're not laws and say they have the effect of a law, but they're not like Congress passing a law. It's based on existing authority granted to the president and the executive to do things with different agencies. And of course, we know one of the other areas the radical right Supreme Court is trying to do is challenge what's called the delegation doctrine so that agencies aren't able to do things. But what the executive order does is direct agencies to do things and to focus on things and really to the maximum extent possible here of what the powers Biden had to do, he did. And so whether that's trying to set up mobile uh, abortion clinics near the border, um, you know, that's something that he wanted to invest resources into with this executive order, um, whether it's providing the necessary information through his agencies to women, whether it's ensuring privacy rights under federal law are protected like HIPAA, you know, at one of the fears, which is a real fear, is that the radical right extremists will start looking at things like period tracking apps and other uh, health records. Uh, and, and going back to the beginning, if there's a federal law and there's a supremacy clause exploring how the privacy rights of federal laws would prevent states from trying to get access to medical records. Now, of course, there are exceptions to HIPAA, exceptions to privacy rights for criminal conduct. And so it's how do you, and, and now that states are defining an abortion as criminal conduct where a woman and the health provider can be arrested and in, in cases sentenced to you know decades in prison for getting an abortion. But Biden did what I think he could do, but it's obviously not, anything like you can't overturn Dobbs right now. There, there's one missing because I, I wasn't as thrilled with his. I know you, you don't sound thrilled, but I wasn't as thrilled with his executive orders. I think he still has more to do. I think, yes, empowering HHS 
Um, and what's been sort of a feckless secretary there in Pachera since he's been in power, now giving him the major task of trying to find federal ways to protect the, the, uh, a right to abortion state by state. The Department of Justice, I think, has more work to do um, and more lawsuits to bring when people are prosecuted inevitably for crossing the border to obtain an abortion. There's one that's missing. and I want to get your opinion about it. I don't think we've talked about this before, but I've, I think I've heard you talk about it on the other pods. Why not? Every state has a federal, has many, many pieces of federal property. Many. Some states are majority owned by the federal government. Wyoming is 70% owned by the federal government, the land. Every state has some sort of armed services base, an air force, a Navy, a Coast Guard, an arm, you know, whatever. Um, why not allow for abortions at medical facilities on Army, Navy, Air Force, and Coast Guard bases within states that do not allow abortion and take the fight directly to the court about the ability to do things on federal land that are not subject to state, state versus federal. Let's do it. Why not? I, I agree with you. I think that the considerations and concerns, if you will, would be you know, making the federal government so directly involved. Now, the federal government before has, you know, allowed the right, has supported the right, but to actually put them in the position, in essence, of becoming the medical provider is a little bit of a different role for them than to do what a government normally does, which is to defend the right. But in defending the right, if you came up with a system that basically says on this land, we will provide a bidding process and allow providers to come on and, and do what they want. I think the federal government's also consideration as well. And it's to me a, a serious one, but how do you balance this is uh, when the providers go on there, you know, would you be uh, putting a target on the providers back in these specific areas where these radical right extremists would potentially kill them. And are you, is, is there a way to do it if there's appropriate funding to help people get across the border in the right way that alleviates the, the, the dangers perhaps of, of what it could look like by literally having an Island within a state that is the United States government's abortion facility. That's why so I like that, it on a, meta, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a military base. You got to go through a gate and you got to go into the military base. I mean, the, the American Indian, the um, Native American who, who operate with their own tremendous amount of autonomy on the lands that they, that they have and can do things that you can't do in most states, like not just gaming. There's many things that they do on Indian Indian property, uh, Native American property that you can't do um, uh, in other states. Um, they could certainly step in and be a provider. But I like the federal. I like Biden doing something other than these executive orders to make available the ability to get an abortion. I, I agree with you, Popak, there, and we'll keep following that. But I do think the executive order is a good thing. I think it is a step in the right direction. I want to talk about the subpoenas right now for uh, Donald Trump's business records from the House Oversight Committee, uh, what took place at the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, an order requiring 
uh, Trump, his accounting firm, to turn over these records. This has been a long-standing fight. Before doing so, I do want to talk about our sponsor, Athletic Greens. This podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the health and wellness company that makes comprehensive daily nutrition really simple. And with so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients it needs to thrive, whether it's busy schedules, poor sleep, exercise, the environment, work stress, or simply not eating enough of the right foods. It can leave us deficient in key nutritional areas. But AG1 by Athletic Greens is the category leading superfood product that brings comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition to everybody, keeping up with the research, knowing what to do, and taking a bunch of pills and capsules is hard on the stomach and hard to keep up with. And to help each of us be at our best, Athletic Greens simplifies the path to better nutrition by giving you the one thing with all the best things. Athletic Greens was incredibly important and is incredibly important for me. Before that, I would go to the you know my local pharmacy store and I would get all the different vitamins that I thought were helpful from there and none of them were actually working. But with one tasty scoop of AG1, it has 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfoods. That gives me the boost. It leaves me feeling great. And it replaced all those multiple products and pills with this one healthy, delicious drink. I just do a scoop of the powder. I shake it up. I put water in it. I drink it. It is super simple and it accomplishes everything that I needed. And it's lifestyle friendly. So whether you're keto, paleo, or vegan or dairy-free, this is for you. So please join the movement of legal AFers like me and Michael Popak, athletes, life leads, moms, dads, rookies, first-timers, and everyone in between and take ownership of your daily health and focus on nutritional products that really work and that are super, super simple. That is essential nutrition. I'm going to make it super easy for you. Athletic Greens will give you an immune-supporting free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Just visit athleticgreens.com slash legalaf, athleticgreens.com slash legalaf. Again, athleticgreens.com legalaf. Popak and I, we negotiate these deals with these sponsors that we love like Athletic Green. So I'm super proud to bring you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs. And this podcast is also brought to you by Policy Genius. In an unpredictable economy, life insurance can offer peace of mind that anyone who relies on you financially, a child, a parent, or even a business partner will have a financial cushion if something happens to you. Life insurance typically gets more expensive as you age. So it's smart to get a policy sooner rather than later. And by making it easy to compare your options from top companies, Policy Genius can help you make sure you are not paying a cent more than you have to for the coverage that you need. Policy Genius is an insurance comparison website that makes it easy to compare quotes from the top companies like AIG and Prudential and Prudential in one place to find your lowest price. You could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. Just head to policygenius.com slash Legal AF, that's P-O-L-I-C-Y-G-E-N-I-U-S dot com, policygenius.com slash legal AF. 
to get personalized quotes in minutes and find the right policy that fits your needs. The licensed agents at Policy Genius work for you, not the insurance companies. They're on hand through the entire process to help you understand your options. It doesn't add extra fees. Your personal info is private. There are thousands of five-star reviews for Policy Genius, and it has options that offer coverage in as little as a week and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Policy Genius has helped over 30 million people shop for insurance and placed over $150 billion, billion in coverage. Head to policygenius.com slash legal AF to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com slash legal AF. Michael Popak, tell me about what's going on with these subpoenas uh, that have been seemingly taking forever uh, that the House Oversight Committee issued in 2019 when Trump was the president. Uh, the courts have ruled on it already. They narrowed it. What what happened? And just to remind everybody, we're not talking about the Jan 6 committee. We're talking about the congressional, as you said, oversight committee and government reform committee whose whose mandate is to look backwards at historical facts and determine if in a forward-looking basis, there should be changes in the way, in new laws related to the executive branch, the presidency or otherwise. And frankly, after you have a presidency like Trump, which pressure tested democracy at its, at its very worst, there may be some new laws that may come out of that. So we don't have a future Trump, new guardrails that are put up to prevent the accidental, the accidental knocking over of the democracy, as Jamie Raskin once said. And that's what this committee is responsible for, contrasting with the Jan 6 committee, which is looking into the root causes of the uh, leading up to and following Jan 6 and the attempt, the attempted coup. As you said, there's been litigation going on related to Mazers, which was the longtime 12, 14 year accounting firm that the Trump organization used for all things Trump. They're the ones people may recall we talked about six months ago where they not only uh, fired the client and said, we're no longer doing the Trump organization work. They took the extraordinary next step of saying, and everything that we did for the last 10 years, all of those financial statements are completely unreliable because we can't vouch for them. We can't certify them any longer because of our own doubts about the Trump organization and its financial dealings. An extraordinary, you and I talked about it at the time, an extraordinary revelation uh, and self-flagellation by the accounting firm. Now you take it up to uh, a series of lawsuits that culminated in a Supreme, in a Supreme Court decision, Trump versus Mazers in 2020, in which they said the oversight committee was um, oh, it was OK for the oversight committee to get these documents, but they had to be as narrowly tailored, na a narrow subpoena as as possible, as reasonably necessary was the standard in order for to protect Trump from an overreaching burdensome subpoena, but to give the oversight committee what they needed. And there's been litigation about what is reasonably necessary in terms of the subpoena, the length of time, the types of documents ever since. <clears throat> and we had a, uh, a, a Met Meta, a judge we've talked about frequently because he's been doing the right thing as it relates to the Gen 6 prosecutions. He made a decision like a year and a half ago about the subpoenas and said, I'm going to narrow the subpoena request to this based on the Supreme Court precedent of Trump versus Mazur. 
And then Trump said, no, that's not good enough. And I, I don't want the subpoena at all. I'm going to appeal. I'm going to appeal that judge. So they appealed it to a three judge panel. One of the judges was Ketanji Brown Jackson, who heard the argument, but did not issue the ruling this week because, of course, she's now got a better job on the U.S. Supreme Court, leaving two judges left. One of them you and I have talked about before, which is Sri Srivanasan, uh, who's who's probably on Biden's shortlist uh, if the if he gets another Supreme Court pick before he before his term is over, his terms are over, and an Obama appointee, Judge Rogers. So they were left, and they voted two zero. So a majority that um, basically the judge made his original decision on the the narrowing of the subpoena was pretty good, pretty good. But they could do better and they narrowed it even further. And so they came up with this is what you're going to need to turn over uh, Mazers to the oversight committee. Two years related to the Trump hotel lease in Washington, five years of records related to the Trump organization and his business dealings. And a, basically one year of records, 2017 to 2018, about the Trump or the Trump organization doing any business with any government official, state, local, foreign or otherwise or federal. So that's the, the box of docs that the District Court of Appeals has said now. But I want to get your opinion. Did you did you take a look at the uh, two paragraph dissent? Uh, sorry, concurrence by Judge Rogers. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah. So she invited basically a motion for reconsideration or rehearing either of the entire uh, court of appeals, the what we call en banc, or either side to come back with a less extreme position than, than she noted that both sides have been taken in litigation, taking the litigation, come back with a motion to reconsider or to rehear. And we'll hear from Trump on executive privilege and on narrowing some of these items that we'll hear from the oversight committee. See if you can cut a deal and come back to us. So even though it's 2-0, turn over the records, it's also an open invitation by the judge, one of the judges, to just file another petition, more affidavits, and a reconsideration. What do you think about that? I think it's horrible, to be honest. <laughs> right. I, I, I think, it, I think it's the strangest really, decision. I, I think it I don't. It doesn't make any sense to me. So, you, I mean, I, I wonder if you want to know why it makes sense. But it doesn't particularly make sense because, you know, even if the intent is that, I don't know, maybe more records should be provided than what the opinion is originally, whatever it is, the more time you give Trump to delay something, the more time Trump is not a good faith actor. So it normally, if you gave a decision like that with kind of two rational actors who are involved in a litigation, who are represented by competent counsel, they may take that direction and say, you know what? let's just cut a deal. Let's listen to what the court's saying. That's, uh, you know, that, that does happen from time to time, you know, where a judge, even if it's in chambers, meaning kind of off the record, you know, a judge will take lawyers in the back and say, what are you doing? Like when you I to cut those deals all the time after seeing a judge's ruling or a tentative ruling. Yeah. But here, all that does is give Trump more time to come up with some more BS and delay this thing. He, if you give him an inch, he will take the full mile of your rights away. <laughs> right. And and uh, the only saving grace, I totally agree with you. I don't know why she blew that whistle at the end. Um, they'll do whatever they're going to do. The judge doesn't have to tell them what the rules of federal and appellate procedure are about what to do next. I don't know why she's inviting. It's almost like she's saying, I'm I'm on the fence myself and there was only two of us. So if somebody will come back, maybe I'll reconsider. 
Um, but, you know, it, it is the oversight committee. So this was never going to be a criminal prosecution of Trump. This is just going to delay rulemaking. But you're right. The delay is if there's a change in the in the majority at, at the midterms, bye bye House Oversight Committee now in the control of the Republicans and bye bye request for the subpoena. It will, you know, so all she's done is given him, as you've said, enough time to tie this up through the midterms, hope they win the midterms. And then the oversight committee is now chaired by Republicans. And it's like, yeah, we don't need those documents. We're fine. It's why the work of the January 6th committee has been so great, you know, in kind of contrast, even to, you know, the the oversight committee. But there, look, there are limitations to and what the oversight committee, you know, can and can't do. I mean, it's a broader it's a broader request as opposed to focusing on, you know, the January 6th is a mandate for just January 6th related, uh, you know, documents and, and information. But it's why Trump and everyone is so terrified of January 6th, including Steve Bannon uh, and Steve Bannon. You all recall Steve Bannon was subpoenaed by the January 6th committee. They gave him the same opportunity they gave Cassidy Hutchinson the same opportunity they gave Sarah Matthews, the same opportunity they gave Pat Cipollone, all of these individuals. And Bannon, who was a podcaster who hadn't worked in the Trump administration for years, years, claimed that he was not testifying because of executive privilege. He said, I'm not going to testify before Gen 6 because even though I'm a podcaster, even though I don't work at the White House, I believe that I should get executive privilege. Then he tried to blame it on his lawyer and said, well, my lawyer told me that I would have executive privilege. And he made that argument to the court um, because ultimately what happened was that executive privilege argument was bogus and BS. The January 6th committee gave him an opportunity to appear. Steve Bannon was well within his rights to actually do what Mike Flynn, what Jeff Clark, what John Eastman did. Fifth, fifth. Fifth, I plead the fifth. He didn't do that. He just said, I'm not even showing up executive privilege. So the January 6th committee, no nonsense, made the referral to the DOJ. The, since the January 6th committee is an investigative entity, they're not a prosecutorial entity. The DOJ, with that referral, took the referral and prosecuted Bannon. Bannon made the argument where he was charged rather with contempt of Congress for not showing up at the uh, committee hearings pursuant to the subpoena. Uh, and he made the arguments in federal court, which were rejected about executive privilege, about my lawyer gave me, my lawyer told me that based on some DOJ opinion that I didn't have to show up, the excuse of relying on your lawyer, the judge said in contempt of Congress cases, that doesn't hold. So Bannon's already thrown mud against the wall over and over and over again to see what sticks. But he's got his trial. It's coming up on uh, is it next July 18th. Popeye? It's, it's a week for, week from Monday. Was that the 18th? 16th? Yes. Yeah, 18th. 18th. So Bannon's trials coming up. And then we learn on Friday some news spreads to the press and <laughs> the press just love to write whatever without even a critical lens of how stupid the information they're being fed is that Trump is considering waiving the executive privilege for Bannon. Now, if the press wasn't a robotic 
entity that actually asked questions and critically thought versus being co-opted as a fascist propaganda machine, they would have said, wait a minute. He didn't have executive privilege in the first place. So Trump is waving an imaginary thing that didn't exist. So who gives a shit? And they would have asked the question, well, what is Bannon really trying to do here versus print a headline that left many people confused and saying Trump plans to waive executive privilege so Bannon can testify. But by the way, if they did that, we'd be out of business. Like if they we did what we're, what we're about to do, if they did it in the article, you and I would be just talking once a week about whatever happened during our week. Let me explain what's going on. <laughs> so Bannon is not going to testify in front of the January 6th committee in good faith. At best, at best, he will either show up for a deposition and plead the fifth eventually, or he will show up and inject madness, conspiracy, shouting in a circus-like environment. That's perhaps at the best case. But what more likely is going on is that as Bannon gears up for his criminal trial, he basically got Trump to say, because the standard in a criminal trial is beyond a reasonable doubt, what he's going to argue is, look, the president just waived executive privilege. So I had a reasonable doubt at the time because, look, if the president of the United States of America just waived the privilege, now I just learned that. And so my doubt was before he waived it, I didn't know whether he would waive it or not. And sure, maybe I was wrong about it, but I didn't have a criminal. I didn't have, you know, really any. Now, we go back to whether intent is an element or not of this in general, though, Popak there. But I think what he's trying to set up is this defense that now that Trump has given me this out, let me now, now I feel that I could do something. So it's a way to delay the trial. So two things. He either argues that in the case itself, or now he runs to the judge and runs to the committee and said, well, now I feel that I could testify. But I think if he does testify, all he's going to do is take the fifth <laughs> anyway, um, or not give useful answers to try to delay and delay this more. What but do you think was, is going on? With, uh, all, all of those things, and I'll throw one more in there. Let me give you my my Popakian predictions, which are consistent with your own thinking. This trial is not getting delayed. Judge Nichols is not going to delay the trial on the, on the 18th of, of July because of two events, one we haven't talked about yet. Consistent with this, I'm ready to tell the jury at the very least that now I'm ready to give my testimony to the Gen 6 committee because my president has, has released me from the, from the uh, bounds of the binds of uh, executive privilege, which were never applicable to begin with. And maybe, as you said, in terms of reasonable doubt, he hopes that one of the jurors, one of the jurors in the District of Columbia buys this bullshit, is confused by this bullshit and this smokescreen and and votes not to convict him of it, pointing to, well, look, the guy wants to testify now that the president told him it's okay, And then to continue this total charade, this whole kabuki theater that they've created, as Mr. as a misdirection play, Robert Costello, one of his lead trial lawyers, petitioned the court to be removed as a trial lawyer in the case because he wants to be a witness, a witness to what our our listeners might be asking, because the judge has already said in April, 
you're not going to be able to run the reliance of I relied on my counsel as a defense, which is sometimes a defense to certain types of crimes in this courtroom as a defense. You're not going to be able to run that. That's not a defense here. So Costello said all of the information my client got about his about his Jan six obligations came through me. So I can no longer be his trial lawyer because the ethics rules that bind lawyers, including Ben and me, say that if you're if you're likely to be a witness in the case for your client, you you can be a lawyer, but you can't be the lead trial counsel or the co-lead trial counsel. You got to kind of step back. You can take the stand, but you can't then go on the other side and become the lead trial counsel again, questioning witnesses because the jury gets too confused by that. So he's petitioned the court to be removed as lead trial counsel so that he can testify as a witness for Bannon. That's step one of this two-step bullshit process to say, aha, I got all the information from Jan 6 and my client was so informed and my client had a belief based on our discussions and they're going to waive attorney-client privilege related to all this. The one-two punch of that is going to be, aha, now the president of the United States or the ex-president of the United States on some, the office of the former president stationary says that uh, he's waiving executive privilege. And now my client is willing to go testify. So he shouldn't be found in contempt. As you said, that's what's going on here. I think Nichols sees right through this. I think there's going to be a battle early next week with the lawyers about whether this letter from the president even comes into evidence, even if Bannon can even talk about it since it's after the fact while he's on trial, having nothing to do with the original reasons why he didn't why he didn't uh, testify. Um, I think Nichols is as 50 50 that he even allows this to come in. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, I think that he probably won't allow it to come in. This right. is what he's already ruled on uh, applying D.C. Circuit precedent. He cited this case called Licavoli versus yeah. United States from the which 60s, said, yeah. which said, quote, reliance upon the advice of counsel is no defense to a charge of refusing to answer a question. All that is needed is a deliberate intention to do the act. Advice of counsel does not immunize that simple intention. And so really what Biden, what uh, Bannon's trying to get around here is that is that deliberate intention and to now say, OK, advice of counsel doesn't work. What about it's my view about what Trump said? And, um, you know, some sort of presidential advice of presidential counsel. And it just shows you how they move so corruptly and kind of going back to your your question earlier about that concurring decision. You can't give Trump an inch and say, hey, work it out in good faith in a back room. You know, there is many good faith clauses, as we've learned. Our system can be unraveled so easily because we've relied on norms and traditions and kind of this, um, you know, gentle person conduct of, well, here's how we need to do things. Um, and here's how it's always been done. And one of the problems is, is when you have an insurrection political party that wants to undo and overthrow the system, they're not following the norms and traditions and the things that we're supposed to protect uh, and prevent a tyranny against a minority has been used to create a tyranny of the minority who have used the vehicles and the tyranny of the minority, meaning the Republicans who consistently would lose in general elections and would lose 
you know, even state elections if they were done without the gerrymandered, you know, processes. Isn't that why they, Biden is having so many problems, Ben? Because Biden is tra a traditionalist that believes in norms. Isn't that one of the problems he's been having in his presidency is going against the party that's in, in a guerrilla tactics mode? And, you know, I think Biden would be far more successful, though, in getting his agenda done if you had, you know, and this is where we have to balance it, you know, a mansion and cinema. Um, they're the ones when when Biden tries to push through the agenda, he's always blocked by mansion and cinema who have who cite the norms and traditions and the need for the consistent filibuster. But remember, if, if you had Biden on his own, let's be clear, the filibuster would be abolished. Uh, build back better would be completely passed. They're a hundred percent at this point. Um, Roe v. Wade would be codified. Biden would do those things. Biden's operating within a reality in a prism that he didn't create. He can't change the mind of of Mansion. You know, people say pack the courts. Biden may agree with that, but he also and I and I, and I don't like the term pack. I do like the idea of make the court consistent with the districts that exist, um, you know, and the circuit courts that exist, um, which are more than nine, you know, which is why you had nine Supreme Court justices, you know, in, in the first place. So I'm for increasing the Supreme Court justices. I'm for making it far less political. Um, and one of the ways you could do that is you could uh, randomize the selection of justices who are picked to hear a, a certain case. But Biden is limited by those realities of those traditions and norms. And so he finds himself trying to then reach the compromises with the tradition and norm people. And then he's viewed as kind of a sellout to people who he actually is trying to help, but can't because of that. So he's stuck in this balance. But I do want to say when you think about and, and I think Biden's doing a great Overall, internationally, domestically, I think Biden is doing a great job. I think Merrick Garland is doing a great job. We have a normal functioning federal government who the radical right wing just tries to tear the freak apart every single day. Um, and when there's issues, when there's gas, I don't want to make this the political podcast, but if there's an international gas price you know, issue, which doesn't affect the US, US gas prices are lower than they are almost anywhere internationally. But what does Biden do? Biden takes decisive action to try to lower the prices. And then people who don't understand the way strategic reserves work and understand the way our international oil markets work and how Biden's trying to bring the prices down go, oh, Biden sold our oil here in the United States to foreign countries. Oh, what a traitor and what a sellout. And the media buys that BS and doesn't realize that you know the world is flat. There is an interconnectivity between our economic systems and to reduce oil prices here you have to reduce them internationally. And so that's why you would sell oil here abroad that go on an open market in an international system. You need to think people need to critically think. And Biden is doing great when people start attacking the Liz Cheney's. We're going to talk about the Jan six committee when they attack Adam Kinzinger. Go. Let's have the debates over their policies after the Jan six committee is done, please. Because I agree with that. They're doing fine now. <laughs> These individuals are standing up for our right. democracy. They're standing up in a big way and doing an incredible job. We need to have the democracy to have the debate. So let's let's save our freaking democracy. I, I, I digress and I could go into this forever. But let's talk about the Fulton County 
our prediction, Bannon, just before I go into Fulton County Grand Trial Duke, on a week from Monday. <laughs> trial. He's going to be found guilty. Um, and, and it's going to be, be able to test. He's not going to be able to testify about this last minute chicanery by Donald Trump to release him from an executive privilege that never existed. Fulton County grand jury has subpoenaed Rudy Giuliani, Lindsey Graham, John Eastman, Jenna uh, Ellis, Jenna Ellis, Cleta Mitchell. I, I do like Simone Biles, like Jenna Ellis was attacking Simone. Did, Biles. All right. See that? So, so I, I tweeted about it. So, so Simone Biles had a great comeback. So so this is how dastardly and disgusting that party has become. The president issues the Medal of Freedom, right? It's the highest medal that the president can give. And every year when Trump was around, most people didn't even want that. You know, he, he gave it to people like uh, Ted Nugent, you know, <laughs> like people. But, you know, the Biden's gotten back to the Kennedy Center and given out, you know, whatever these these medals. So he decides to give it rightly so in the sports world to Megan Rapino, the captain striker for the women's soccer team, you know, five time world champion, Olympic champion and transgender LGBTQ rights advocate um, out, you know, openly gay herself and Simone Biles, who, except for the Olympics, when she had a slight issue, is the greatest of all time in female gymnastics in terms of her um, success and having been a victim of Nasser and the sexual abuse scandal that for which she was, you know, uh, uh, who came out later as a victim right around the time of the Olympics. Both of them got the medals. Jenna Ellis, who's nobody ever heard of, except for when she sits next to Rudy Giuliani when he's got a gas problem. She says, leave it to leave it to loser Biden to give the award to two other losers, Simone, Simone and and Megan, to which Simone Biles came back. So I tweeted, retweeted it, said, um, who is Jenna Ellis asking for everyone? Who is she? Yeah, she's 0-63 in every case that she handled for Donald Trump. And there were 63 of them where she's on the pleadings. She's 0-63. That's who has the temerity to attack Joe Biden and his his picks for the Medal of the Medal of Honor and Medal of Freedom. Yeah, he, Pobach, these people, these maggots, these magas, they're freaking losers. <laughs> like they are uh. losers. They are losers in their profession. They are they they don't even strive to be smart. They love they love just being ignorant and hateful and stewing in that hate. And frankly, the most anti-American, despicable people, they'll they rush to defend Putin. They attack our military abroad. They attack our American heroes and Olympians. I mean, no matter what, because our Olympians say that people should have equal rights. That's what they're saying. Because our Olympians are saying as representatives of America on an international stage, that they say things like people should have equal rights. We should protect LGBTQ plus rights. That is why they are attacked by MAGA losers. And I just think we have to, as the January 6th committee is exposing what losers 
these MAGA people are. We need to call them freaking losers. We need to not, we need to treat them like losers. And we need the media to stop amplifying their bullshit like they did on the Bannon stuff and basically say, ooh, Trump is executive privilege. Shut the freak up. You are wrong. And I'm trying not to curse so that this podcast doesn't get the explicit review, oh, did, but you could, that, oh, that's why I dropped the F bomb before I went on vacation. It's, it's okay. It's, right. I think it's, I think it's okay sometimes. Um, but I'm trying to <laughs> trying not to get the podcast. But anyway, so the talk about Fulton County, Fawny Willis doing an incredible job. She's the Fulton Love County her. DA. We've talked about on, on this podcast before how you and I are both confident that there will be criminal charges brought against Donald Trump out of the uh, Fulton County DA's investigation. Here's what's happened. She assembled a special grand jury. There's an interesting process that's, that takes place out in uh, Fulton County where this special grand jury makes a referral and they can make a ref criminal referral, which then would go to an actual grand jury. Um, and the grand jury, that grand jury would then be the grand jury to indict. So why does Phony Willis go through all of these steps. And number one, procedurally, you know, the subpoena power, the ability to conduct the investigation and to get the information. I mean, look, we have a lot of it on tape. We have the calls between Brad Raffensperger and Trump and Trump saying, find me the 11,000 votes. Um, we played the, the full tape. Popak is on the Midas Touch YouTube channel. I would tell people to go and find it and watch it and listen to it. It may make you vomit a few times, but it's worth listening to vomit notwithstanding because listening to what an idiot loser Trump is on this phone call is just something in a full hour. You just get a better sense of like literally a, a, it's an offense to second graders. You know what the way this man communicates like he is a second year mafioso wannabe freaking loser. And you hear all of that on the uh, you hear all of that on on the audio. But that's the special grand jury process. We know she's already spoken to Brad Raffensperger and now she's uh, subpoena Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham reached out to Raffensperger um, uh, and said, you know, and also tried to get him to uh, overturn the election and told him to reconsider. It's just ridiculous stuff. That's what Lindsey Graham did. Of course, Giuliani, Jenna Ellis, you know, all, all well, of let, that. Let's, let, let's go. Let's go through each of those. So Graham in November of 2020, and while he was the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, calls up Georgia to try to get them to throw out lawfully cast absentee ballots in order to turn the election. He was the first phone call. All the other phone calls that we've talked about, including the one that Trump made in December, was later. The advance team for Trump's fraud was Lindsey Graham making that first phone call. So you got the calling Brad Raffensperger and others as the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, ostensibly. Then you so that he made two phone calls to Raffensperger. You then have um, Jenna Ellis, Rudy Giuliani and Eastman putting on that phony hearing, inviting some Republican and other Georgia legislators <clears throat> to where they're going to make a presentation. This is the one that you and your brothers uh, mercilessly um, <laughs> versus Lee, um, uh, lampooned uh, Giuliani for where he passed gas on Jenna Ellis, who was sitting next to him during the presentation. So and John Eastman, Johnny Eastman was there again. So um, they all have to do with this phony presentation. Ken Cheeseborough 
was in charge of trying to make Georgia into a fake elector scandal by having them uh, nominate fake electors. Cleta Mitchell, who was a who was a partner at a law firm I also was at when I was at a young, younger lawyer, Foley Lardner, no longer there. She was actually on the phone call with Donald Trump and Brad Raffensperger and Mark Meadows and all of that. So she's a witness to that issue. And um, Fawny Willis also over the weekend um, also testified also uh, in a news show said it's likely or possible that Donald Trump could be called before the grand jury. So what's the next step? Uh, the next step is if you don't like your subpoena, you can go to the chief judge and move to quash the subpoena. But it's very, very difficult. It's not going to be what Lindsey Graham's lawyers released on Friday, his statement, which is, well, he was the chairman of the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee. He has the right to call up individuals at, at, in Georgia and ask them about the fairness of the election. That's not what he did. The testimony has been that he tried to get them to throw out absentee ballots in order to turn the tide of the election. I think they'll move to quash. They'll do it this week. Others may as well and join in. It'll be the chief judge because that's the one that ultimately issues the subpoenas under Fawny Willis's power. She's under the chief judge of that of that district. And if they lose on their motion to quash, which I think they're going to, I, I, I want to get your opinion, then they'll have to go into the grand jury and testify. However, they'll preserve their Fifth Amendment right to take the fifth against questions that are asked. So I think my prediction, they'll lose on the motions to quash. They'll have to go into the grand jury and most of them will take the Fifth Amendment. What do you think? Oh, I tend to agree with you. They're going to try to drag this out, though, and appeal it. But Fawny's not going to let them. I, I think that they will. <laughs> I think they will take the fifth. Most of them will take the fifth. I wonder what Lindsey Graham, you know, will do. Yeah, um, it'll be it'll well, be politically that looks bad. But yes, <laughs> politically, it looks bad for the chairman of the Judiciary Committee to take the Fifth Amendment against criminal implication in a grand jury trying to get to the bottom of whether there was uh, election interference. You know, and you know, I've heard people say, look what Fawny's doing and comparing that with Merrick Garland. And there are some comparisons there that I think are kind of apt and appropriate and it should not take anything away from Fawny Willis, who is a badass prosecutor, who is crushing it, who is diligent and just doing an incredible job out there in Fulton County. The task before Merrick Garland is uh, what Fawny Willis is doing times about 10,000 because it is prosecuting everybody who was involved in Jan 6th on the day itself of the insurrection, on the interference, not just in Georgia, um, but as well in all the other states with the fake electors. And so it's a nationwide investigation. And ultimately there, whereas Fawny has that uh, you know, the, the charge that one specific phone call and the other potential phone calls on recording, which, by the way, can be used by the Department of Justice in the work that they're doing in their future potential prosecutions. They're focused on an incredibly broad range of conspiracy. And we've seen the work that they've done starting at the low level, you know, the clowns and the wannabes and the kind of cultist soldiers and the shamans and all the idiots, the Chewbacca's, and the, yeah. all of them climbing a level, climbing a level, climbing a level, getting to the leaders of the terrorist groups like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, winning prosecutions at a very high level. 5-0. Right. 
And then the next piece of it is then connecting with the White House itself. And we've seen those connections with the January 6th committee. We'll see more of that. And I think what a lot of these hearings are going to be focusing on as well, Popak. My also prediction, I think there may be an additional hearing. I, I, I think that there's room for more, especially after we hear from Sarah Matthews. But we'll see if I'm right or wrong about that. But also who we haven't heard from yet asking the question is Jamie Raskin. Raskin hasn't has his day his day yet, which he's been one of the most vocal. Members he's the of closer. The Don't you think he's the closer? <laughs> one of the things I think he'll focus on is going to be the connections between the White House and the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. And we know that the top levels of those Oath Keeper Proud Boy terrorists were actually in the White House. Right. That, that Enrique Tario terrorist was in the White House in December, right around Christmas time before the insurrection, it'd be like Timothy McVeigh being invited into the White House before the Oklahoma City bombing. I mean, it, or, it's or, that. or invited into the federal building in Oklahoma City. Yeah, you have Enrique Tario terrorist invited taking selfies and photos. Just think about that. that. That's the United States of America under Trump. How sick and disgusting is that? I want to talk briefly about January 6th committee, though I do want to give a special shout out to Slotomania. You'll have endless excitements at your fingertips with 170 free-to-play slot games, huge jackpots, an interactive community, and a million free coins. It is the perfect escape from your daily routine. And I've been playing the heck out of this uh, Slotomania, Popak. Um, it's fun. You get to play all these slot machines. They give you when you start a million free coins so you can, you can use it whenever you want to use it. And I mean, to me, it's just kind of the entertainment that I just enjoy playing on my phone, you know, just during breaks sometimes, or if I'm sitting in the passenger seat of, of the car going somewhere or while I'm makes- talking during the podcast. Yeah, and it gives you that <laughs> rush you feel with a big jackpot win and getting a little me time to relax each day. Just a fun mix of casino gaming and casual gaming anytime. And there's nothing more exhilarating than the huge jackpots, the special prizes, the free coin rewards every single day. And there's hundreds of original Vegas style video slot machines ready to play wherever and whenever you want to and wherever you are. It's kind of like a Vegas vacation without the luggage, some would say. Interact with fellow players and form cooperative slot-o clans. Popak, I know you are in the Popakian slot-o clan or you will be starting a Popakian slot-o clan with some of your friends or enter into electrifying live tournaments when your day is feeling stale just ask what will today spin if you're 21 or older you can join millions of players around the world download slot o mania s-l-o-t-o-m-a-n-i-a the number one free slot game on the app store google play store get one million free coins Go to the Google store, the app store, wherever you get your apps and download Slotomania. I know you'll have fun. You can DM me. Tell me about if you're enjoying Slotomania. Um, it's not a gambling app. It's not a gambling game. It's, you don't get cash. You don't play to win real money. Um, this is just a fun way, kind of mindless, fun entertainment, but like you'll really, really enjoy it. So download Slotomania right now and send me a message. Tell me if you enjoy it. Um, I enjoy it a ton. 
Popak, January 6th. So excited. Mini. Tell us about Pat Cipollone, Sarah Matthews. Yeah. New hearing coming up July 12th. The hearing, the committee's just been bueno. Crushing it. Committee's crushing it. Bueno. So Pat, Pat, Pat Cipollone, and I think Jordy did a really cool, um, a little a cool video drop on the Midas Touch uh, Twitter feed today on it is really um, an amazing connective witness, not only corroborating for many things that Cassidy Hutchinson said, notwithstanding people said, oh, she didn't know it's hearsay. How do you? OK, well, as you as you have a roadmap witness, which is what we would call Cassidy Hutchinson with credibility and dignity and courage. You then fill it in with other people that were actually in the room for certain of the events that she's uh, a witness to. One of them is the chief White House counsel. These are not like low level people like this guy was a janitor. He used to clean up the waste paper baskets in the White House and he saw something. We're talking about the upper, upper echelon. If they didn't have the top job, they had the deputy job right under the top job for everything that mattered to the White House and, and, every, and, the, and the levers of power right through Jan 6 and beyond. Pat Cipollone, an honorable man in the Republican circles as a lawyer, notwithstanding his decision, a career, a career uh, threatening decision to work for this president. Um, he gave in um, in uh, four months ago, he gave informal testimony to the committee. So he cooperated. And now on Friday, he gave eight hours or nine hours of videotape testimony um, and the, wh where does he fit in? Well, Cassie Hutchinson says he was in the dining room of the White House when the hang Mike Pence comment got made by Mark Meadows to the president. And the president said, well, that's a good idea. And Cipollone was in the room for that, says Cassidy Hutchinson. He was also in the room when the proposal to have Jeff Clark, a low level environmental lawyer, replace uh, Rosen as the acting attorney general in order to do Trump's bidding to have the DOJ issue a letter and a uh, formal announcement that they were investigating possible fraud um, in order to enhance Trump's conspiracy plan. He was in the room and along with Rosen in front of Trump told uh, Clark, you're basically you stick to being an environmental lawyer. You're not qualified to take that position. And if, if the, Prior testimony of other witnesses is correct. Cipollone is quoted as saying that if you issue that letter by the Department of Justice claiming that there was fraud when there wasn't any in the Jan 6-7 period, that is a murder-suicide pact, Pat Cipollone's words. Anybody that touches that letter is going to jail or is going to ruin or wreck their career. And I never want to hear about that letter ever again. That's Pat Cipollone. Kirshner... Kushner testified, and, and it's been shown in video clip, that Pap Cipollone threatened to, to take himself and all of his lawyers out of the White House when certain things were being proposed by Trump and some of these crazy lawyers like Jenna Ellis, Sidney Powell, Eastman, Giuliani, Cleta, Cleta Mitchell, such as let's do a fake elector. Let's have fake alternate slate of electors in every state. Cipollone said, I'm leaving. Uh, let's do. Uh, Let's march on the Capitol. This is what Cassidy Hutchinson had testified to. 
And Cipollone, according to Hutchinson, hopefully confirmed in his own testimony, told her we cannot allow the president to march to the to the Capitol. It it would be it would be a criminal jeopardy for everybody involved in that decision. And we can't let it happen. Um, so we've got Pat Cipollone, almost like the Zelig is in so many historical rooms at, at the right moments to history to, to testify about these things. And according to um, one of the Jan 6 committee members who testified on, on, on one of the national news programs after the testimony on Friday, she said that Pat Cipollone did, did not contradict any testimony previously given, meaning, uh, let's read between the lines, that he basically supported everything that Cassidy Hutchinson said, she being so far the key witness that may bring Trump and the others to justice. So they videotaped that, Ben. That was Friday. Tuesday's the next hearing. Plenty of time for that group to work overtime to get an amazing set of clips to support because they know, look, they read the papers, uh, the Jan 6 committee, they read the media reports. They know that Cassidy Hutchinson took a little bit of a hit about the lunging President Trump on the wheel of this of this of the Secret Service in the in the uh, official vehicle to try to force his way. You know, everybody reported that, as you said, mindlessly reported that as the headline. And so everything else she testified to was fine. But that one, oh, that one was wrong. Secret Service isn't going to corroborate that. I think they think they they want to bolster and reinforce Cassidy Hutchinson could come as early as Tuesday with some clips from Pat Cipollone. What do you think? Watch day seven of the Popo Buck. You said everything. I mean, you want me? I, I could just re-repeat what you said. Look, uh, how? What would it take for the media to finally say? Oh, I'm being fed information by Trump. Um, maybe I shouldn't report it until I verify it. Like, what what would that take? And I think the answer is, you know, when the money dries out. You know, and unfortunately, uh, you, you said you said this earlier. Unfortunately, the media is into two camps. You have just a fascist, propagandist, anti-American media like Fox News, like OAN, they drape themselves in the flag, but they spread conspiracy, hate, and propaganda to prop up fascism in the United States of America. On the other hand, you have corporate controlled media that both sides every issue and treats a fascist argument and a truthful pro-democratic argument on the same platform as having the same ability to compete as one versus one, whereas the media should be calling out and exposing anti-democracy, pro-fascism in a very strong and robust way. And what you had happened is NBC News reporters and others took the lies that Trump's inner circle said to them about Cassidy Hutchinson not knowing the facts, but were actually corroborated by other Secret Service who knew what happened. And that media manipulation was, as you described it, you know, there was a brief moment where they were like, oh, like this was a this was the January 6th committee not do its homework here or what happened, you know, which lasted a few hours until the right news got out. But it was actually media that's supposed to be it's not Fox News. I mean, that one came from an NBC reporter, you know, right. that that did harm to an organization, to the committee that was bringing out the truth 
um, in all of its form. And at the same time, that NBC style media being distant, intellectually dishonest and not really reporting on January 6th with the full force of its efforts to call out the fascism that's taking place and truly educate its viewers on what's going on. And as you said, well, if that existed, it would put us out of business. Sure. You know, there's some times where, you know, I, I, I say even as a lawyer, I'd, I'd rather be put out of business than have you know, if that meant as a civil rights lawyer, everybody's civil rights were protected, I'll find something else to do. Um, we've had to find this niche and exp- and build the Midas Media Network and build out shows like this within the network because of the existence of a broken media. And so I do want to say, watch day seven of the bombshell January 6th insurrection hearings live on the Midas Touch YouTube channel. Our coverage will begin Tuesday, July 12th at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific. The live broadcast production is brought to you by the Tony Michaels podcast. We have the best panelists, uh, the best group of panelists out there, including Michael Popak, Karen Friedman Agnifilo. We have David Bender and Texas Paul and Politics Girl. And we have Jessica Denson and uh, Michael Cohen. Uh, giving and Mysalis, Brett yeah, Mysalis. We try, we try, but an incredible <laughs> panel. Make sure you check it out again. Um, subscribe to the Midas Touch YouTube channel. I do want to give a special shout out to all of our sponsors today. Athletic Greens, Policy Genius, and slot mania Make sure you check them out by supporting them. You support our show. Check out Midas Touch merch at store.midastouch.com. Store.midastouch.com. Rock all of the best Midas Touch and legal AF gear, whether you're a Popokian or a Midas Mighty. We have the best gear for you at the Midas Touch uh, merch store. Go and check that out now. Michael Popak, great to have you back. I'm glad we covered Thank you, all of these topics. We missed you. Um, any final words for Popak before we go? No, I, I'm just thrilled to be back. We've got a busy, busy summer. And, um, you know, what you and I have built with your brothers for Legal AF um, is, is just the perfect framework for analysis uh, for Jan 6 and beyond through the midterms and beyond. I'm just so, so as you know, I'm so humbled to be a part of it. The most consequential legal news of the week and of our time, Midas Touch Legal Podcast, Legal AF. Ben Micellis, Michael Popak, wishing you all well. We'll see you next time on Legal AF. Shout out to the Midas Mighty. Midas Mighty.